And as you sit down, would you turn to our passage today, which is Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Now, Dwight Brown, I've gotten to know, and, and I must say, um, if you'll understand what I mean by that, I think Dwight is a beautiful man. He is an amazing man. And I think we've been really blessed to know Dwight over the years. And yes, feel free to, free to applaud. And Dwight sent me a, a message. He had itemized the different uh, passages coming up for the next couple of months before he leaves. And he said, uh, you know, if you would be willing to do these, I'll do these. And so we're going to alternate for a while. But uh, what's funny about it is that Dwight had chosen for today one of the densest passages of Scripture you'll ever find. And, and, and I think he's afraid that I'm holding against him and I won't forgive him for that. But I will forgive but I was looking at the fact I had to introduce myself as interim and then also preach this passage. I'm like, oh my goodness. So uh, we're going to do it. Actually, I'm delighted. It's, it's one of my favorites uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. But let me show you uh, something. I found this slide yesterday and I thought this is pretty cool. I, I am not going to tell a joke about the time. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to just pass on that. But I want to get into the scriptures. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. So understand Ephesians probably was written around the year A.D. 61 or 62. And I mean, that was just a few years before Dwight was born. So it was, it was written around. <laughs> and so Paul wrote this book. And I want to show you where Ephesus is, in case you've never seen it on a map. So Asia Minor is what we call Turkey today. Ephesus is in the southwest corner in Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was called Asia Minor back then, or congregated in that area. I know you can't see it, but uh, not far away would be the, the city of Laodicea, Colossae, where Colossians uh, was aimed. And the river that goes through there is the Meander River, and that's where the name Meander comes from. And so Ephesus was a coastal city. It was a large city, maybe 200,000 people in the day. They had this giant temple called the Temple of Diana, and they worshipped that. There was a lot of demonic worship in the area, and that's the environment. And Paul writes to the Ephesians, and really, I mean, you all know, you know, you got your atomic bomb, your hydrogen bomb, and then the theoretical cobalt bomb. Ephesians is like a cobalt bomb of theology. I mean, this book is amazing, absolutely amazing. And so Paul wrote it to these Ephesians. But what I want to show you beyond that is that in Revelation chapter 2, there's this message to the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, which says, but I have this against you, Christ says, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I want you to think about this. Revelation, it's generally felt, was written in A.D. 95. So one generation after the book of Ephesians was written, Revelation was written. And the people that received this incredible book... A generation later had the statement from Christ, you have left your first love. You have left your first love. And so my friends, I want to warn us all today, it's not that hard to fall away from the Lord. In Ephesus, it happened in a generation. 
And the way that we keep from having that happen is to have a strong core of elders who are committed to the Word of God, committed to the DNA of the church, to have a strong body of believers who are in the Word of God and who train their children. It would be much more important for you to train your children to love the Lord and to be in the Word of God than to use the cell phone to be on apps all day long and to play every sport known to mankind. We have an obligation to raise our children as unto the Lord. And we have an obligation to stay true to the Lord as a church because we do not want to be like the Ephesians within a generation losing our first love. So our job, one, is to think about our spiritual DNA and, if you will, propagate it. Now, as we get to Ephesians, uh, here's the deal. You need to understand with Ephesians that Paul sometimes would get really excited. Like Ephesians chapter 1, there's this long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1 in the Greek. And so translators look at that and they're like, how do we break this up so it can be understandable? Well, guess what? This passage before us in Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16, in the Greek is only two sentences. Only two. Let's take a look at the passage. Let me read it to you. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about the, uh, the details here. And as you turn to uh, Ephesians 4, I want to pull out my reading glasses. I have a large print Bible but it's not large enough. Verse uh, 7. Paul is writing about unity in the body of Christ, and he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that is a meaty passage, isn't it? Thank you, Dwight. And so, as Paul talks about unity, what he is saying now is that not only for the church at large in terms of general unity, but individually, God has given us individual gifts to serve him and to serve the body. And we have to use our gifts in order for the body to grow, for the body to grow in love, for the body to avoid deceitful scheming, false doctrine, those kind of things. And so I thought it would be uh, a good idea today because, again, this is two long sentences in the Greek. And if you're wondering what I mean, uh, let me give you the details here on that. If you want to take a note, that's, that's great. That's up to you. But what we have in the sentences here is that there are 55 words in the Greek from verses 7 through 10 
And there are 124 words in the sentence from verse 11 to verse 16. So a part of teaching this is just kind of sorting that out for you. So there's two main thoughts here in the Greek, and this will help you process it. And so this slide here is just to try to put the whole passage together in one slide to show you the thinking of Paul. Number one, I know the red's hard to read. I'll adjust that next time. Each one of us is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. God doesn't randomly give you spiritual gifts. God knows what he wants for you, and he gives you the gifts according, accordingly. And what that means, oh, by the way, is that each one of us has a gift for the body. And if we don't exercise our gifts, then we are hurting the body because the body is not being served by what it is God gave us to use for the body, right? And so we have to think about that. Now, I will be honest, I'm not real big into spiritual gifts inventories. A lot of people are like, you got to take a spiritual gifts test before you go any further. And it's like, look, the spiritual gifts tests I've seen, to be honest, have been personality tests a lot of times. So my thing is, you want to know what your spiritual gift is, get out and get active and see what you enjoy doing, see how God's wired you, see what seems to have an impact, and do it. You can take an inventory if you wish, but it's just a lot of times our personality tests. Okay? Are we good? So each one of us is given grace, and then number two, God gave leaders, Christ gave leaders for the equipping of the saints. So we have individual gifts, but God also gave leadership gifts for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, if you're wondering why this outline is the way it is, this is basically the outline in the Greek of Ephesians 4. For the work of service, God gave the leaders for the building up of the body of Christ until we as a body attain to maturity in Christ's fullness so that we will not be children who are tossed carried by every wind of false doctrine and deceived. Rather, on the other side, we are to confess the truth and love, speak the truth and love, and we should try to grow up in him, Jesus Christ. And then at the bottom you see, he who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, with its joining and working, produces the growth of the body for growing in love. And that's what this passage is saying. So God has gifted us individually, and God has given leaders. So why don't we uh, kind of dig into this a little bit. And it's going to get quite interesting because we're about to get to the harrowing of hell passage. And, and you all have not heard that phrase, so I'm about to tell you uh, what that means, and I'm going to thank Dwight for, uh, again, giving me this passage. So look with me in verse 8. Now, verse 8 is a bit of an, a subordinate parenthesis kind of thing to the whole argument. It says in verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, which is a quote from Psalm 68. And then Paul says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So it's kind of a parenthesis to the whole thing about gifts. And then Paul goes on to talk about gifts. But a lot of times what will happen is people will get to this spot and that will pretty much take over the sermon. So I don't want that to happen, but this is most interesting. Y'all have read this passage before, I'm assuming. Have you heard about the, what it means to descend and ascend? Okay, so let me give you an illustration of that. So when I was teaching high school kids in Georgia, and again, not all of them were church-going or believers, 
But I had a kid come in one day and he said, Mr. Webb, somebody said Jesus went to hell. He, Jesus, like, he, you know, go to hell. He went to hell. I was like, what in the world? Who would say that? And all of a sudden it hit me. Oh, he's referring to Ephesians 4. And so I said, well, Johnny, Jesus didn't go to hell. Jesus went to hell. What? What do you mean by that? And it's out of here in Ephesians. For the reason that it says he descended into the lower regions. So bear with me here. There are two major points of view on what this means. Number one is that it refers to the incarnation. In other words, when Jesus descended, he descended to the earth in the incarnation. But there's another view that's kind of uh, popular. That is that Jesus descended to Tartarus to announce his victory. Now, right about now, you think I've lost my mind. But, au contraire, not at all. In fact, this point of view has been around for a long time, and it's what the Catholic Church calls the harrowing of hell. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, let's look at it again. When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In the Hebrew Masoretic text Bible, it is in the passive. Here it's in the active that he's giving gifts to men. That's a side detail that we could explain at some other time. But when it says in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? You will notice it doesn't say he came to earth. It says he descended to the lower regions. And that's where this gets fascinating. For example, in the book of Jude, it says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And it goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment and all of that. Now, why in the world would that happen? Well, you remember way back in Genesis 6, for the sake of time, I'll just tell you about it. We won't turn there. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh his days shall be 120 years. And what happened was God brought the flood. So there's this theory that when these sons of men came down, these sons of God, actually they were angels, they were fallen angels, they were demons, and they came down to earth and cohabited with human women. Have you all heard this? I'm sure many of you have. And when they did that, they produced this race, if you will, that was half human. Some people say, well, that's where we uh, get the, uh, the gods of mythology from because the world did have these super creatures. And it uses the word Nephilim in there, which were big people. Well, there were big, unusually big people in Bible times. In fact, if you read the story of the, the wilderness journey of the people of Israel, when they came up to Kadesh Barnea and God said, I want you to go across the land and spy it out, and they sent 12 spies. Remember that story? They came back and 10 of the spies, one from each tribe, but 10 of the spies said, we can't go into the land. There are big people there. And two said, well, our God's even bigger. Let's go in the land. But the reason they were afraid is the Anakim were in the land. They were really big creatures. So you had these creatures in, in ancient times. So anyway, the theory was 
God sent the flood to wipe out this race of super creatures. Have y'all heard that? Okay, so I didn't make that up. That's been around a while. So with that in mind, you know, there's several theories about what the sons of, of God were there, whether they're angels or not, but it's pretty common to say they were angels. So I'm not going to argue the point with you today. I'm just trying to enlighten you on this passage here. So when it says there in Jude, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their dwelling, that's referring to those creatures, uh, the demons from Genesis chapter 6. That's what it's saying. And so the idea would be that God took those demons who stepped out of their place and he put them in a prison, if you will, a spiritual supermax under Hades in a place where they would never come out. Okay, so that's what it says there. Now, what else do we see? 1 Peter 3 says, in which he, he, Jesus, went and proclaimed with the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And that prison is what I'm referring to. Now, the words in the Bible for hell in the lower regions, you have Sheol, which is a general term in the Old Testament for the lower regions, doesn't necessarily mean hell. You have Gehenna, right, in the New Testament, in the Greek. Gehenna comes from the Valley of Hinnom, right outside Jerusalem, which is the garbage pit of Jerusalem, and that's where they would burn the garbage pit, the, the garbage. So it was like their, their landfill, but they would burn the garbage. And so that became the word for hell. Then you have the word Hades, which we're real uh, knowledgeable about, but you don't see the word hell per se in the Greek. But this is yet another word, uh, and it's referring to Tartarus. And I'll show you now in 2 Peter 2, that bottom passage, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, literally, he, in the Greek it says he tartarized them. Now you think tartarizing, that's like going to McDonald's and getting a filet of fish sandwich, you tartarize it. <laughs> but the Greek word tartaro here means to put in Tartarus. So this is a special place of captivity. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into judgment. So because they're in this place of darkness, these demons did not know what was going on. They did not know that Jesus had come and died and risen again. So on Saturday after the crucifixion, Friday, April 3rd, AD 33, from noon to 3, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. That Saturday, basically, he went down to Tartarus and announced to the demons that had committed that sin in, in Genesis 6 that he was victorious, and so it was a victorious proclamation. That's the idea. They didn't have CNN down there. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they have CNN in hell. I don't know. But I'll move on. So anyway, so that's the idea. So now I know that sounds wild. Dwight, do you realize you made me preach this this morning? And so that's one of the perspectives there. And so it could well be that when he's referring to that, he's referring to that scripture, and he's, uh, he's mentioning that. That's the incident being returned, referred to, but the bigger point, don't lose the big point, is that God has given gifts. And so this is an aside. So let's move on then. Let's move to verse 11. Uh, let's see, where's Jay? Is Jay still in here or did he leave? Jay, am I still employed? I'm just curious. So in verse 11, he, Christ, gave these spiritual gifts of leadership, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Okay, you know, all of these things could, 
could really involve a lot of conversation. And right here we see that. Here's the list. It seems like there's a bit of a sequence here, the apostles. Now the thing with the apostles, the early leaders of the church, the apostles, the twelve, of course Judas uh, committed suicide and he was no longer in a group, but in Acts chapter 1, they chose one to replace him. And who did they choose? Matthias, Acts chapter 1. So you have 12 apostles. However, when the apostles died individually, when they died out, they were not replaced. So eventually all the apostles died. Now a side conversation sometime would be, what about apostolic succession, which is the Catholic point of view of continuity of doctrine, which is that there was always an apostle with the keys to the kingdom. That's their point of view regarding apostolic succession. I'm not advocating that today. I'm just saying that's where it came from. So I'm assuming that in verse 11, he gave the original apostles. Some people think the gift of apostleship still continues today on the mission field, but we do not have the position of apostle. And so he gave the apostles and then the prophets. And again, uh, the gift of prophecy was very important in the early church before the, gospel, the, uh, the canon of Scripture was completed. But does it exist today? People debate that. You can say something that sounds prophetic without it being a specific prophecy. What was the standard in the Old Testament if you gave a false prophecy? Stoning. I know from reading the rabbis that when they stoned, just this is a little aside, they would dig a pit, they would put the person in the pit and keep dropping rocks on them until they were crushed to death. I don't know about you, that's not my idea of how I want to go. So the prophets, though, today, you know, maybe it happened some, I don't know. That's the hard thing. The only way to tell on a prophecy is to see if it actually comes true. I've actually had people tell me that I have the gift of prophecy. And I think it might be because I'm old. I don't know. And just because I've got some wisdom. But I do think I've got some discernment from God of being able to look ahead and to see the outcomes. And I'm not saying that's the gift of prophecy. I don't see it that way, but I've had people say that. I don't know. Uh, next, we have the evangelists who shared the gospel. And then next, we have the shepherds and teachers. And in the Greek, shepherds and teachers are closely combined. And so it's kind of like shepherd hyphen teacher. Here's what's interesting. The only verse in the New Testament that refers to pastor is Ephesians 4.11. And that's in the King James. The word poimen means shepherd. And so what you see in the New Testament a lot is you see elders, but you don't see pastors. We just got through in Georgia with going through this uh, pretty intense uh, uh, discussion about eldership because the church wanted to transition from being a Southern Baptist pastor and committee-focused, congregation-focused church to elders. Now that's an interesting process. So in the process of it, I really studied elders quite a bit. And, and so this is what you see. So I believe the elders are the shepherds, and the shepherds refers to the function that they have of shepherding a congregation and teaching, and that they're combined. It's shepherds, teachers. Now, if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that later, but uh, it's just interesting to look at that. But here's their purpose in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. When you see that little word, to, that's referring to the purpose. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So who does the ministry? The biblical way to look at it, I mean, honestly, is that it's the body of Jesus Christ, all the saints who do. Well, first of all, saints means holy ones. Who's a saint? 
if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you truly do, then you're a saint. Okay, I don't know if you've thought of yourself that way. Wives, are your husbands saints? Well, <laughs> let's not go there. But you have been gifted by God to do the work of ministry. So what is the role of the leaders of the church to equip you and to create an environment where you can actually minister? So several things with that. Uh, to minister is not a profession per se. And it's not something that we do in the church alone. It's something that we do by nature of being a called of God. And you're equipped to do that. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, years ago, I was flying through the Atlanta airport. Now, I used to fly out of Atlanta, but now I, you know, I fly through Atlanta. And when you die and you go to heaven, you're going to have to go through the Atlanta airport first. I'm just letting you know. And it's, it was pretty busy, as always. And uh, in the restroom, there was a janitor standing beside the door, and he was singing praise choruses. And I thought, that is so awesome that here is a man who is a janitor, and he took that role as his calling from God to minister to people who are traveling. Isn't that amazing? And I just want you to know that ministry isn't what takes place in this room or this building. It's what takes place out there. So when you go to lunch, I just pray that you will be gracious to your server, tip your server, treat them well with the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you're ministering, right? So all of us minister, and the leaders help equip us to be able to do that in, in different ways. I just don't want us to have this, this, frankly, pagan mentality that ministry only takes place in a building or by the professionals. All of us are ministers. How do you feel about that? Amen. All right, good deal. You're starting to sound like Baptist, by the way. I just, just, just want to warn you. And we are building up the body of Christ. And our goal is to attain to the unity and not be tossed around by false doctrine and so on. And the elders play such a critical role. Now, I realize uh, we've been going on for a while. So I want to uh, share something with you. I shared with the elders the other night. Speaking of elders equipping the saints, the elders are called by God to be stewards. And I told him this the other night, and I think I'll throw this out there today, see how you react. I'd like for you to look at the person next to you and say, you are a stigweird. You are a stigweird. Stigweird. Stigweird, which probably was pronounced stigward, comes from the Old English, and the stig is thought to be, I mean, honestly, the pig pen, the sty, and the weird or the ward was keeper of the pig pen, keeper of the pigs. And the word for steward comes from stigweird in the Old English, and it means the keeper of the pigs. So I'm not saying who the pigs are, but your elders are stewards in the church. How do I know that? 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly because you want to, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the role of an elder is not to dominate the flock. There are other words he could have chosen, but he chose shepherd. 
He did not choose power-focused words such as they're lords of the flocks or they're the kings of the flocks. He says that they are the shepherds and the servants and they should have humility. And when the chief shepherd comes, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's to the elders. And then uh, it does go on and say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you Isn't it interesting? That's where this promise comes in, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I think he's broadening this to refer to the whole body, but he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The devil prowls around. And then in the last paragraph, I love the promise there. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you to Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So my friends, kind of the conclusion, I think I'm going to go ahead and land the plane here. In Ephesians 4, what we see is God is saying, we as a body of Jesus Christ come together in love and humility. We exercise our gifts together. When we do that, we elevate the body to to the level of Jesus Christ in terms of honoring and glorifying Him. We keep ourselves from false doctrine and from being deceived. We have an impact on the world and we glorify the shepherd and one day, one day, we'll receive that crown with Him in glory. And for now, while things are tough, we're only suffering for just a little while. It's not that long. So now that I'm at the age I'm at, I looked the other day, somebody had produced a grid, and I looked at it, and it was like, okay, so you have all these boxes representing the different weeks of your life. So my bottom line point is this. If this is my life expectancy, I realized that I've already come down to here. There's not a lot of time left. So two things. I can make it. I can make it. It's not that much longer. Hang in there. And number two, I want to use the time while I can. That's been my big prayer for me and my wife is that out of the fire and other situations that I would not waste the experience, I would not waste the time. And I want you to feel the same way. Let's serve the Lord while we can. There's not a lot of time left. Let's take advantage of the time. He'll be here soon enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ here that you have called. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I just pray that you will continue to draw us together, that this will be a loving congregation that adores you, that stays true to you, that's in the word, that serves one another, and that is a shining light to the community around us. Thank you for my friends here and watching online. Bless them all in Jesus' name.